Hi, it's Saturday. It's the Saturday show. We still counting? We still counting in uh, Arizona? Oh my God. California. Hello. So I'm going to bring you two timely political segments. Actually, one was from Not Even Mad, our sister show, which makes me what? My own step sibling? This week, this is the segment called Cancel Court. If you haven't familiarized yourself with Cancel Court, you will become familiar now. And then I will come and talk to you about an interview I did in 2020 with pollster Robert Cahaley of the Trafalgar Group. Trafalgar and Cahaley are getting dunked on because he got the midterms, the most recent midterms, really wrong. After not even mad, after you hear this segment, I'll come back and set you up for the Cahaley interview. Oyves, oyves, cancel court is in session. Justices Kerchik, Heffernan, and Pesca presiding. All those who have been canceled might have been canceled or stand for the proposition that no one is ever canceled. It's all a myth. Are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Today's litigant is the one answering the question, will you apologize? Right here in this clip. It seems like Adam Silver wanted to hear the word, I apologize, or in your mind, you said I didn't mean to cause any harm. Were you apologizing or not apologizing? I didn't mean to cause any harm. I'm not the one that made the documentary. The documentary Irving is being asked to apologize for posting a link to is titled Hebrews to Negroes Wake Up Black America. Kyrie Irving is woke, old school woke, third eye, more enlightened than you can imagine. He referred to himself as a beacon in the Q&A session that you heard. It was reminiscent of him calling himself a voice of the voiceless last year after he refused to take the COVID vaccine, thereby surrendering his eligibility to play for the Brooklyn Nets under New York City law. During his media availability, Irving referred to himself as a melanated, pigmented person, but claimed, I can't be anti-Semitic if I know where I come from, but pointedly didn't apologize for posting the video. Or when asked if he was anti-Semitic, didn't answer with a straightforward no. And after that Q&A session, the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, rejected the half million dollars that Irving had previously pledged to them. The Nets suspended him for five games, then posted six conditions for him to return. Among them, apologizing and he since has written an Instagram post that can be considered an apology. He's also asked to receive a couple kinds of training, donating money to the ADL, which he tried to do, but they rejected and meeting with the team owner. So here we have a public figure saying not the words his employer would want him to say, but maybe you could argue generally phrasing in his own way a sentiment of, I take responsibility for what I said. He repeatedly refuted the idea that he had to say what his critics demanded he say. He stood up for the principle that he wants to say his own words and think his own thoughts. So Jamie Kerchik, I ask you, is Kyrie Irving being canceled? I think he is in the process of it in the sense that he's being suspended. Although, if they're going to keep him on the team, ultimately, then I guess he isn't being canceled. Um, Might be a little too soon to tell. Now, look, I don't play sports, so it really doesn't matter to me at the end of the day whether if he's good enough, if it's going to hurt the team. Um, But I think what he's said, what he's endorsed publicly, rises to the level of something that's so heinous that a private institution, a private corporation, uh, which has a reputation to protect and is located in the most heavily concentrated area of Jews in America, okay, is Brooklyn. They might say to themselves, you know what, this guy is insulting our fans 
Uh, he's saying terribly bigoted things that we don't want our team to be associated with. And much in the same way that a whole slew of corporations have distanced themselves or severed their relationship with Kanye West, I think they're perfectly entitled to do so and justified in doing so. Justice Heffernan. So uh, Kyrie Irving's video is a strange little masterpiece that I know we only got a piece of it, but he he does at times... His press conference video or Hebrews to Negroes? The the press conference conference video, although I have uh, studied Hebrews two Negroes more than I ever thought I would. Should we explain what that's about, by the way, the, the, the thesis well, it's, of it? I mean, among other things, it is a fake documentary, viciously anti-Semitic, reprises the usual, um, the, the usual kind of sewage about uh, banking conspiracies and above all denies the Holocaust. So he was, this is by praising this thing or retweeting it or giving it attention. He was engaging in, you know, immoral speech that is illegal in a lot of places. Um, Holocaust denial. Like France, not America. No, not America. Right. It's that it's illegal in a lot of countries, if mm-hmm. not America. Sure. All right. Sure. But um, and I agree that most uses of this is quite literally fascist speech. For the record, yes. this is what Antifa grew up to oppose in Europe, sure. where, yep. where, where where was Holocaust denialism. So this is so why I object to uses of fascist speech, even though they're protected under the law um, by public figures. Uh you know, I do think that this can and should be grounds for firing from a private organization, just like Jamie says. But I will also say I absolutely loathe the effort to get Irving to say that he, quote, hurt people by what he said. Mm. I This reminds me of Christine Blasey Ford having to show evidence that she was traumatized by a, a, an alleged rape. It It doesn't matter. This is a crime, right? It's an immoral act. Maybe they're making some cynical calculation about how much it hurts the brand for the Nets or the NBA. But something where where people start having to say, I was more hurt by your thing. No, I was more hurt by racism. This is called the Oppression Olympics. And it is exactly what Hebrews to Negroes exists to exploit, which is Ah. argues that black people are the true Israelites. Jews are trying to keep them down with banking conspiracies and self-pity about how they Jews were oppressed. And that that has bounced um, Kyrie uh, Irving, who seems to be coming to terms with the excitement of literacy. I mean, right. (laughs) He just said he's starting to read books more and uh, read dictionaries and whatever. And that now he has, you know, decided that his oppression is much worse than what Jews suffer. And then he's supposed to perform this BDSM ritual where he's like, oh, God, I've converted. I've seen the light so that he can get his job back on the grounds that he hurt people's feelings. So I hate the Stations of the Cross that they've asked for him. I think the ADL should have taken his five hundred thousand dollars. Money is money. um, And the and the NBA just should have let him go. So I want to ask each of you a follow-up question. But for you, Virginia, I want to clarify, because I've heard people say, I hate that he's being asked to apologize. But usually the criticism is because obviously the apology will be insincere. So we require an insincere apology does nothing. Seems to me like you're saying something different, which is that the harm isn't that he reflected or has nothing to do with Kyrie. The harm is just the actual words themselves. And his reflection about, about that harm is pretty irrelevant. This is your point? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I also just, you know, if you listen to him closely, he is the reason that he says, if I know who I am, I can't be anti-Semitic. He means if I if I know myself as a black man. And I really do think it it, means that in the dictionary, he defines himself as Semitic and he's very clever. And so therefore he can't be anti-Semitic. I mean, I I don't know. I think he he's he seems to me teachable. But if everyone's determined just to humiliate him by having him perform some special atonement ritual. Um, then better to fire him. I mean, he's, Interesting. it I'm seems gonna, like you could give him my... a Shalom Aleichem book or a, I, I was like, what, you know, I wish that this guy who's crying out for more books to read <laughs> and, and if he's watching movies, why don't someone just show him Schindler's List or something, Night and Fog. Yeah, it's actually uh, show is the only movie longer than Hebrews to Negroes. But <laughs> Jamie, I want to ask you, I want you to articulate a principle to, to explain this to me. Kyrie Irving said something that was offensive to a population, perceived to be an actual, and his bosses say, I think this is bad for the brand. But there are, I perceive you to be a little bit more of a hang judge than I am on these questions of cancellation. There are many other incidents where an employee says something that the bosses perceive to be harmful to the brand. You could argue Colin Kaepernick did this, not with words, but with actions. Or if you remember Gina Carano, who was uh, the actress who was thrown off that uh, Disney series, The Mandalorian, I think it was, for supposedly saying anti-Semitic things. And then Jonathan Chait pointed out that what she was saying was just pretty much garden variety republicanism yes. what is the principle what it's is the totally pr- subjective okay okay and i agree with you i don't i don't think that's Col- not a flaw by the way i think that's true it's subjective and i'm, and I'm gonna so. explain this i don't think yeah. that i don't think that colin kaepernick should have suffered um penalties from the nfl or for his team i think what he was doing while i disagreed with it and i found it disrespectful i think is entirely uh, his right to do he was expressing the views of many people and kneeling for the national anthem it's not nearly as offensive as Holocaust denial. And I think the problem that those of us who are very critical of cancel culture, the reason why we're critical of it and what we see as cancel culture is that the problem is, is that the, the Overton window of acceptable opinion in this country has shrunk rapidly and mostly in a left-wing direction, which is why it's mostly kind of centrists such as yourself, Mike. And then right-wingers or conservatives are usually the victims of this. You don't see that many people like Colin Kaepernick who are the victims of cancel culture because all these institutions have been captured by a kind of left-wing ideology, the academy, journalistic outlets, foundation world, the arts world, the culture world, and they're the ones who are imposing this ideology. So there are cases, of course, where people should be canceled. The reason I'm uh, broadly critical of cancel cultures because I think that that those, the the cases have expanded far beyond what's what's reasonable. And I think what our trial today of Mr. Irving is to me an open and shut case because there's no one, um, no rational com- person can defend these statements or really believe that they're anything other than uh, sheer bigotry. I think that's right and useful and honest. I don't think it hurts the general case that there is this uh, illiberalism that's bad and we could call it cancel culture if we want to acknowledge that the actual content of the speech matters. And this does, this does get into the realm of subjectivity. So it's a little different from tenure. It's a little different. It's a lot different from the First Amendment where the First Amendment can be literally content blind yes. and tenure can be largely content blind and you could argue it has to be. 
But cancel culture does depend on the subjectivity of the offense. Now, this opens the door for anyone to claim a harm at any bit of content yes, or sentiment. Yes, and what we need are responsible leaders of our institutions who don't buckle to every ridiculous claim of someone being offended. And that's the problem, is that these institutions are no longer led by people like that. Well, I they're, mean, led by, they're led by people who do buckle to every mm -hmm. frivolous claim of that something is hate speech or offensive, when in most cases, they're not. Well, let me just tell you a complication, a Nets-based complication, which is that their owner, Joe Tsai, who seems to be on the right side of this issue and wanting to educate Kyrie, also criticized Daryl Morey, who is the GM of uh, the Philadelphia 76ers, when Morey issued a very anodyne and correct tweet bemoaning what China was doing to Hong Kong. Joe Tsai, oh, yeah. a big owner of Alibaba. So I don't know that he's the beacon we want uh, in general, but maybe in this case, he's doing well. Virginia, you were saying. I mean, I just don't... I guess I don't know what the NBA brand is, what the Nets brand is that needs to be defended. Um, so if that's what we're talking about, we just are guessing. I mean, journalistic organizations and academic organizations have a commitment to, uh, well, to free speech on the one hand, to inquiry on the other, and to, uh, you know, in my mind, certain simple tenets of social justice that would make I think this be a firing offense if it happened at a university. Um, I also, Jamie, will say that if you think the Overton window is crunched by liberals, you have never been had like the life trolled out of you by Tucker Carlson and his followers. I mean, the cancellation that happens when you're in the sights of a Gamergate style thing is is it's totally different from having to change jobs. There's cancellations. The the right commits cancellation as well. And Fox News is a good example of that, right? How many Trump critics are there on Fox News? Hardly any. Right. Um, so within the institutions they control, the right performs cancellations as well. It's just that they don't control nearly as many institutions atop the commanding heights of American culture and arts and letters well, than, I guess, the left, I mean, I, than the left does. So. I guess that's for another time. I mean, I don't know. Did I don't remember, but did, did Dennis Rodman, you know, talk about how all his domestic abuse offenses were, she had it coming. I don't know. I don't know what basketball players say. Like, maybe they're just supposed to um, kind of mug for the camera and go outlaw and everyone. No, there's been, I mean, there's been a sea change uh, in accordance with where our mores are as a culture. In fact, there was uh, a player on San Antonio who was just let go for exposing himself to a team psychologist. And <laughs> there's more, there's more accountability for the coach of the Celtics is, uh, or the ex coach of the Celtics is suspended for having a relationship with a, a member of the Celt a female member of the Celtics staff. So, you know, there's uh, a move just like with everyone else of what's going on in the NBA. I do think it's time to give our rulings. I'm going to introduce some new evidence as I rule, but I think that's the best place to put it. <laughs> Let us, uh, I ask you, Jamie Kerchick, here are our questions. Was Kyrie Irving canceled and was the cancellation deserved? He was not sufficiently canceled, uh, and he should be. Mm. Virginia Heffernan, canceled? Deserve cancellation? Uh, you know what? I'd try to rehab him. If if he were if I ran the team, I would give him my Chaim Potok book. I would give him a little Shalom Aleichem, and I'd show him Sophie's Choice and say, you know, just sit with this for a little bit. Um, maybe give him another chance. Um, but I wouldn't put him through these paces of humiliation. So I think he has not yet been canceled. I think he can still be rehabilitated, but if that fails, he should certainly be kicked off the team. 
And you hint at where my mind is. Kyrie Irving has not been canceled because one aspect of cancellation is no forgiveness, no second Mm -hmm. chances. And the Nets have given that to him, extended that over and over again. Self-interest is a play. He is a very good point guard. And Ben Simmons isn't doing as well as we thought he would after his time on the bench. But because of all that forbearance from the institution that would supposedly be canceling him, I say, I would say that he has not been canceled. Therefore, it is irrelevant, deserved or not. It just doesn't apply to him. But is it deserved? You have to answer, right? Isn't Should he be canceled? No. Everything the Nets are doing uh, is correct to demand that an apology that satisfies the PR, even if it's not sincere, uh, some sort of understanding, some sort of process for rehabilitation. And damn it, once you show that you care, maybe the ADL will take your $500,000. (laughs) So we have our judgments that Kyrie Irving has not been, though may yet deserve to be canceled. All judgment of cancel court or binding precedent until which time of reconsideration or revelation of bad takes, bad tweets, or punching down. It is so ordered. So please do subscribe to Not Even Mad. You have to subscribe specifically and intentionally. Don't just trust this show to put segments in the feed. Now on to Robert Cahaley. It was 2020, and looking back to 2016, he had taken a victory lap, this pollster had, because he did get Trump, or many states that Trump won, more correct than many other pollsters. And then he seemed to be getting a lot of attention because he was advancing the narrative, and his polls were doing so with numbers, that Republicans were being undersampled. To some extent, it's true, because they were shy and didn't want to talk to pollsters. I don't think that was the reason. But the reason I'm playing it now is because the dunkathon is on. Robert Cahaley totally blew the 2022 midterms. To take one race, he said that Josh Shapiro was leading Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania in the governor's race by two to three points a month ago, and then he bumped it up to five points in his last poll. Shapiro one by 14 points. So that's just one example. What I think Cahaley does is he just gives a couple points to the Republican almost every time, not in every race, but in races where he thinks that in retrospect, he'll look wise. He doesn't tell people what his exact methods are. He doesn't have to. He said, just look at the results. The results are terrible. But when I talked to him before the 2020 race, he was predicting a Trump win, as you'll hear, and he was predicting Republicans would do better than it was thought, and they did do better than it was thought, and that's why he became another figure in this race. I guess people forgetting that he overall had this massive optimism for Donald Trump. I'll come out of the end of the interview and just give you some updates on some stats and predictions he was talking about so you could hear where reality landed. As we know, in the 2016 election, the pollsters got it wrong. Only a couple things. On a national level, the pollsters really, really got it close to right. But then again, we don't vote on a national level. There were some states that really no pollsters nailed, except for one. Robert Cahaley, who runs the Trafalgar Group, was the only pollster to say that Trump would win Michigan. He had a very good record on many of the other swing states, the so-called blue wall, and he told us that Trump would win, often by the margins that he did win. In fact, if you look at the Electoral College vote, and this comes with an asterisk, Cahaley nailed it exactly. Now, the asterisk is because that there were some faithless electors in Texas, but still, even without them, he came closer than any other national pollster. So, 
Girded with this reputation, Kahaley wades into this election with the Trafalgar Group, and his polling is consistently showing Donald Trump doing much better than the rest of the national polls and state polls indicate. And in some states that are supposedly going to Biden, according to Real Clear Politics Average, Kahaley says, no, Trump's up. Like, for instance, Ohio, where he has Trump up 3.7%. National polling average in Real Clear Politics is 0.6%. Or take Michigan, where Biden Biden is supposedly up 6.7%, according to the other pollsters. Kahaley and Trafalgar says, nope, it's 1.6%. Let's talk to him about his methods. Thanks for joining me. Good to be here. So what is, and I know you like to simplify things, so in the simplest form, what is your secret sauce for getting these very different results than everyone else? Well, I'll let you in on as much of the secret sauce as I'm willing to tell anyone. But some of it's pretty, you know, it's pretty obvious we are we're kind of a polling industry disruptor for a few reasons. We just shoot down all the orthodoxy. The polling establishment, the orthodoxy is you need to do nothing but live callers, and you have to make sure that you you know have, you ask these long detailed questionnaires. Well, I think live callers are the number one way what's called the social desirability bias infects a poll, and that's when the person who's answering the question worries about the opinion of the person asking them the question and gives an answer they think that will be more pleasing to that person and less offensive to that person. This has had gone by a few different names, but it was called the Bradley effect. And so we've seen this manifested in my life. Anything that's controversial, I'm used to seeing this effect show up in polling. The first clue there was something going on with this was when we were polling the primaries in 2016. And we saw a significant difference between what our live callers and our digital polls were giving. And it was like a three-point difference. And as it turns out, the three-point difference that the non-live callers were getting was correct. And we realized there were people who were voting for Trump who just weren't admitting it. So we kind of built that into our thinking for the fall of 2016. And um, so the first thing is, know that there is a thing called the social desirability bias know that it was real in 2016. And I believe it is worse this time than last time because last time it was, you know, they're deplorables, this, that, and the other. And, you know, the environment has totally changed in America since then. So you have a few dynamics working. First, Trump supporters are about five to one less willing to answer a poll to begin with. So if you don't start with the idea that you've got to work really hard to get a good sample of Republicans, you're going to start with a flawed poll. Second, the social desirability bias makes live calls the worst way to do it. What we use is we use a mixture of live, email, automated, text, and a few other digital things that we consider proprietary that we don't discuss. But we try to do a very balanced collection to ensure the people giving the survey feel that they are answering it anonymously. The more anonymous someone feels their participation in a poll is, the more honest they are. So a couple things. Uh, Bradley, that was a 1982 race. And I studied political science. Um, it's been, I, I, I would say, widely discounted, though I suppose you would doubt the uh, political science behind it. But even one of the popularizers of the Bradley effect said, you know, the 
political science professor Charles Henry wrote an editorial saying, I coined the term the Bradley effect and it's not real. I remember Barack Obama, the Bradley effect was raised as, oh, this is why he might not win. And then he did win. Although you're right. I mean, as you know, and I don't have to tell you, Andrew Gillum, a black candidate, was supposedly leading in the polls. I mean, he was leading in the polls. And then he lost on election day. And you got that right. And what was interesting on that race is we were obviously polling the Senate race and the governor's race. There was no, you know, we asked, we asked in that, that in 18 and 16, the, who do you think most of your neighbors voting for, which is a great way to get beyond the social desirability bias. And we saw no difference in the Senate race and about a five point swing in the race for governor. So, you know, and here's the thing. I grew up in South Carolina, which was in, we shared a media market with North Carolina. I mean, some of my earliest years in politics were seeing this guy named Jesse Helms, who was very much a Trump like figure. It was very controversial, and the running joke was, if he's behind by five points, he's going to win. So anybody who says this effect isn't real, listen, that that might get him some tenure at some college somewhere, but uh, I don't buy it. I mean, that's not reality. You know, I've watched it happen again and again and race after race, and it doesn't have to be about race. It can be about anything. It's easy for people to, to discount something. I mean, you know, they discounted and said, well, we got it wrong in 2016 in these states because of we didn't wait by education. I mean, it is really easy. But what they are doing is they are defending an old model. They are defending what I call dinosaur polling. And the world has moved on. People move too fast for long questionnaires. People do not want to be disrupted and to take a poll now or never. And, you know, people don't feel comfortable sharing their opinions in the current environment. And if you don't adjust for that, you just keep getting it wrong. But the problem is people who poll with an agenda don't care whether they get it wrong. And that's, I see a lot of agenda polling. The people criticize, oh, well, you know, you, you guys are Republicans. We absolutely, you know, my, my background is Republican, but that didn't stop me in 2018 from predicting that Debbie Stabenow was going to win. Uh, and I, I like Jack, John James a great deal, but he wasn't going to win. And for predicting very early that Joe Manchin was unbeatable and for saying that Tester was going to win when the entire Republican establishment wanted him to lose and for even calling that Wisconsin was going to go to Evers and not Scott Walker. We got roundly criticized by my fellow Republicans for making those predictions, but our goal is to get it right, not to be popular with any party. Yeah, I'm actually more interested in process because I have a couple of theories. And one is that I think it's possible that you've gotten a couple of keen insights correct, but within that, you may be getting some things wrong. So one insight that seems very smart to me is the length of polls. It does seem to me that asking a few quick questions that aim to get the answer that we're all looking for, who you're going to vote for, probably is a better way than 50 question surveys that do exclude um, many regular people from taking part of it. But the part that I really question is, it seems like you've weighed in uh, with an assumption about the motivations of undecided voters, that there is a, for instance, a shy Trump effect um, among people who may be living among Democrats and have social costs to supporting Trump. But doesn't that work the other way? There are huge counties where everyone and their neighbors are going to vote for Trump, but there are the people who might be against Trump or voting for Biden. Why wouldn't they be shy? Well, there's obviously there's there's a shy voter effect 
in, in, on many sides. As a matter of fact, I predicted early in this cycle that if the nominee were to be Bernie Sanders, that it would have a huge shy effect between Bernie and Trump and that we would have an undecided number in excess of 5% uh, leading all the way to election day because people, with him taking the label of socialist, there would be Democrats who weren't comfortable saying they were for him. So I do believe it works both directions, absolutely. You know, in 2016, the difference we saw was Hillary, All I mean, not there was never an exception. When we asked the neighbor question as a measurement, Hillary always dropped by three to six and Trump went up, you know, well, I think it was three to nine. And it, it was without exception across the board, one pattern. Now, are there people, are there shy voters within? Yes, there are. But the other thing is, the way I look at the social desirability bias, I mean, it, these are rough numbers, but I would say our process eliminates two thirds of it because we get more average people, because we give a shorter survey, because we give them a comfortable, give them, co- comfortable feeling that is anonymous. I think we knock off about two thirds of the social desirability bias, but I can look at our results. I can look at people because we ask additional questions that we are not sharing with the media this year because of scrupulous pollsters like the guys that work for Fox News who copy us without giving us credit. Now, I don't take credit for thinking of it. There's a guy named Rod Sheely who taught it to me in South Carolina when I was growing up. So it ain't my idea, but I, I, you know, I don't mind giving credit for who gave it to me, but that helps to to give you a sense of where they are. We ask additional questions on our poll, not a lot of additional, but ones that tell us where they probably really are. Now, we don't integrate that into our numbers. We just keep that in mind as we look toward our final poll of the year when we're going to make a prediction about how the undecided will break. So, for example. I can look at my Pennsylvania poll that shows Trump losing by two. And I can see questions about fracking that showed me the vast majority of the undecideds were very pro-fracking. The vast majority of the undecideds thought that Trump was much better on dealing with China. And the vast majority of the undecideds said they weren't a strict constructionist conservative judge on the Supreme Court. Now, I don't believe those undecideds are breaking toward Biden with those answers. And I saw people who answered many questions that were, un, I mean, that were duplicates of the way Trump people answered them and said Biden. So I think there's still some hiding in even ours. I do not claim to eliminate the social desirability bias. I claim to minimize it. I do have one question about just the entire conception of social desirability. So we are group animals. And when there is social pressure, people react in different ways. So as you see it, people react by sticking to their original opinions, but not telling others about their opinions. Sure, I'm sure some people do. But, you know, from my observation of human nature, sometimes when there is huge pressure to conform, you know what people do? They conform. So why don't you look at the social desirability effect as sometimes causing more Biden voters if it becomes all the more socially desirable to vote for Absolutely. Biden. Absolutely. There are band... Listen, there, you, are, you are completely correct. There are bandwagon people. And, you know, there are people that, that want to be outliers and there are bandwagon people. What's really interesting is when you do focus group work and you ask a focus group, they watch an ad or, or you know, listen to you know, some audio or just watch, uh, you know, a television program with the candidates on them and then you ask them to talk about what they think. And then you ask them to show their hands on how they feel and, you know, who they're for. But then you also hand them a paper ballot 
and let them go separately mark what they see, you will see a difference every single time. People who had an opinion that the group didn't like, didn't feel comfortable sharing in front of the group, but as soon as they could write that thing down where nobody was looking, they told you the truth. I mean, that is just human nature. I mean, I, my example is when you confront the toddler with a face full of crumbs and ask him, did he eat the missing cookies? He is doing mental calculation right then on whether he should be honest and get in trouble, or if you're asking the question you don't know, and maybe he should say no. Now, I don't believe that behavior changes when we get older. I mean, it is literally to suggest that a society full of people who lie to their accountant, lie to their attorney, lie to their doctor, lie to their priest, all of a sudden just become honest Abe on the telephone for a poll? Come on. In the words of Joe Biden, come on, man. No way. So we see certain demographic groups really fleeing from Trump, suburban women and especially old people. Why would there be a difference in a demographic group like the elderly or suburban women that makes them more likely to be a shy Trump voter or a hidden Trump voter than other demographic groups that haven't abandoned Trump? Two pollsters, I mean. I don't speak in terms of all demographic groups as as if any of them are monolithic because I don't think they are. No, I don't think they're monolithic, but I'm trying to point to the demographic groups that he had strength in and that he's losing strength in. And so if your explanation is he hasn't really lost strength. No, I think he's lost a lot of strength with suburban women. But what he's also picked up is significant portions of the Hispanic and black vote. We have polled not a single state, not a single battleground state that he is doing less than 15 and that Joe Biden is doing more than 75. Not a single state in the black vote. We have polled not a single battleground state that Trump is doing less than 35 and Biden is doing higher than 60 with Hispanic votes. And those are the ones who, who say that that's where they are. Now, of course, our polls are much more anonymous. So I think that's the place he's picked up. I also think he's lost some ground with the seniors. And I think that is completely COVID related because seniors, unlike every other group, look at COVID in a very different way. And not, not just because they're elderly and more likely to catch it. Most of them do not have children living at home that they would like to get out of the house to go back to school. Most of them did not have an interruption in their income because of shutdowns. And most of them were never worried about whether they worked affecting whether they had health care. So they would naturally be less likely to want to push the economy back going because the shutdown did not affect them to the same degree. It's just, it's logic and it, it, it makes sense. And, and I've heard them say it. They're very nervous about it. So a traditional Republican stronghold would be the, those same seniors are di- very much in play. If the election were held today, who do you project winning? Right now, I think Trump wins in the mid 270s. I think he wins Florida. Florida's, I, I don't think Florida's a question. Ohio and Florida are not a question. Anybody talking about Georgia and Texas, that ain't going to happen. I think North Carolina, he'll edge out North Carolina and win it. And then, it, then he'll, I think he will win Arizona. And so then it comes down to he only has to win one of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. And I believe he will win one of them. And I think Michigan is an excellent chance for a Trump victory. I would say probably of those four, Michigan is the most likely one that he will win. And if he wins the others, that's all he needs. 
So on election day or election week, the tide goes out and we see who's swimming naked and who's swimming with trunks. Look, the numbers are the numbers. In 2016, you got the numbers right. If it turns out in 2020 that your numbers are wrong, are you going to say my numbers are wrong or are you going to say maybe it's voter fraud, maybe it's a deus ex Charles Barkley? The question is, what about all the guys who got it wrong in 2016? They didn't say anything. But here's the thing. I will certainly... I do not mind saying that. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, Pennsylvania, I might have to, I might have to put an asterisk on that one because I really think that one's going to be stolen. But the rest of them, I mean, if we get it wrong, we get it wrong. Listen, I don't mind being held accountable. I, I, if we lived in a polling meritocracy, I'd be the happiest guy you know. But we don't. We just don't. I mean, I have a theory. And I said in 2016, three days before the election, you know, come Wednesday, I'm going to be the guy who got it right, and nobody's going to listen to me anymore. I mean, I believe in what I say. It's the reason I challenged Nate Silver to a bet, which, of course, he immediately declined because he, he can't bet on these things. Because I believe in what I say. I'm not putting this out there for the benefit of a party or a campaign. I have a private sector polling business, and we make lots of money in the private sector because people believe that we get it right more often than anyone else. So... My goal is to get it right more than anyone else. Election week will be the test. Robert Cahaley is the chief pollster of the Trafalgar Group. Thanks for your time. Hey, thank you. And that was me with Robert Cahaley in 2020. You should know you heard him say that he doesn't think Biden's going to win more than 75% of the black vote anywhere. He won well above 80% of the black vote almost everywhere. And he also said that if Pennsylvania goes to Biden, which it did, I'm going to suspect it was stolen. Guess what? That should tell you everything you need to know about Robert Cahaley. I guess we just needed to see his poor performance, as he directed us to look at the performance, his poor performance on Tuesday to really see it in high relief. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara and Joel Patterson. He's the senior producer, and we will talk to you Monday.